Volume Three, Chapter Nine of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Dupal de Martin. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, Volume Three, Chapter Nine. Now, soft a while, have I arrived so near the end? Yes, it is all over now. A step or two over those new-made graves, and the wearisome way is done. Can I accomplish my task? Can I streak my paper with words capacious of the grand conclusion? Quit thy Cimmerian solitude. Bring with thee murky fogs from hell, which may drink up the day. Bring blight and pestiferous exhalations, which, entering the hollow caverns and breathing places of earth, may fill her stony veins with corruption so that not only herbage may no longer flourish, the trees may rot, and the rivers run with gall. But the everlasting mountains be decomposed, and the mighty deep putrefy, and the genial atmosphere which clips and globe lose all powers of generation and sustenance. Do this sad visage power while I write, while eyes read these pages. And who will read them? Beware, tender offspring of the reborn world. Beware, fair being with human heart yet untamed by care and human brow, yet unploughed by time. Beware, lest the cheerful current of thy blood be checked, thy golden locks turn grey, thy sweet dimpling smiles be changed to fixed harsh wrinkles. Let not day look on these lines, lest garish day waste, turn pale, and die. Seek a cypress grove, whose moaning boughs will be harmony befitting. Seek some cave, deep embowered in earth's darkened trails, where no light will penetrate save that which struggles, red and flickering, through a single fissure staining thy page with grimmest livery of death. There is a painful confusion in my brain which refuses to delineate distinctly succeeding events. Sometimes the irradiation of my friend's gentle smile comes before me, and methinks its light spans and fills eternity. Then, again, I feel the gasping throes. We quitted Como, and in compliance with Adrian's earnest desire, we took Venice in our way to Rome. There was something to the English peculiarly attractive in the idea of this wave-encircled island-enthroned city. We went down the Po and the Brenta in a boat, and the days proving intolerably hot, we rested in the bordering palaces during the day, travelling through the night when darkness made the bordering banks indistinct, and our solitude less remarkable when the wandering moon lit the waves that divided before our prow, and the night wind filled our sails, and the murmuring stream, waving trees, and swelling canvas accorded in harmonious strain. Clara, long overcome by excessive grief, had to a great degree cast aside her timid, cold reserve, and received our attentions with grateful tenderness, while Adrian with poetic fervor discoursed of the glorious nations of the dead of the beauteous earth and the fate of man, she crept near him, drinking in his speech with silent pleasure. We banished from our talk, and as much as possible from our thoughts, the knowledge of our desolation. And it would be incredible to an inhabitant of cities, to one among a busy throng, to what extent we succeeded. It was as a man confined in a dungeon, whose small and grated rift at first renders the doubtful light more sensibly obscure, till the visual orb having drunken in the beam and adapted itself to its scantiness he finds that clear noon inhabits his cell so we a simple triad on empty earth were multiplied to each other till we became all in all 
we stood like trees whose roots are loosened by the wind which support one another leaning and clinging with increased fervor while the wintry storms howl thus we floated down the widening stream of the po sleeping when the sakal sang awake with the stars we entered the narrow banks of the brenta and arrived at the shore of the laguna at sunrise on the sixth of september the bright orb slowly rose from behind its cupolas and towers, and shed its penetrating light upon the glassy waters. Wrecks of gondolas, and some few uninjured ones, were strewn on the beach at Fusina. We embarked in one of these for the widowed daughter of Ocean, who, abandoned and fallen, sat forlorn on her propping isles, looking towards the far mountains of Greece. We rowed lightly over the laguna and entered Canal Grande. The tide ebbed suddenly from out the broken portals and violated halls of Venice. Seaweed and sea monsters were left on the blackened marble, while the salt ooze defaced the matchless works of art that adorned the walls, and the seagull flew out from the shattered window. In the midst of this appalling ruin of the monuments of man's power, nature asserted her ascendancy and shone more beauteous from the contrast. The radiant waters hardly trembled while the rippling waves made many-sided mirrors to the sun the blue immensity seen beyond lido stretched far unspecked by boat so tranquil so lovely that it seemed to invite us to quit the land strewn with ruins and to seek refuge from sorrow and fear on its placid extent we saw the ruins of this hapless city from the height of the tower of san marco immediately under us and turned with sickening hearts to the sea which though it be a grave rears no monument discloses no ruin evening had come apace the sun set in calm majesty behind the misty summits of the apennines and its golden and roseate hues painted the mountains of the opposite shore that land said adrian tinged with the last glories of the day is greece Greece, the sound had a responsive chord in the bosom of Clara. She vehemently reminded us that we had promised to take her once again to Greece, to the tomb of her parents. Why go to Rome? What should we do at Rome? We might take one of the many vessels to be found here, embark in it, and steer right for Albania. I objected the dangers of ocean, and the distance of the mountains we saw from Athens, a distance which from the savage uncultivation of the country was almost impassable adrian who was delighted with clara's proposal obviated these objections the season was favourable the north-west that blew would take us transversely across the gulf and then we might find in some abandoned port a light greek caique adapted for such navigation and run down the coast of the moria and passing over the isthmus of corinth without much land travelling or fatigue find ourselves at athens this appeared to me wild talk, but the sea glowing with a thousand purple hues looked so brilliant and safe, my beloved companions were so earnest, so determined, that, when Adrian said, Well, though it is not exactly what you wish, yet consent to please me, I could no longer refuse. That evening we selected a vessel whose size just seemed fitted for our enterprise. We bent the sails and put the rigging in order, and reposing that night in one of the city's thousand palaces, agreed to embark at sunrise the following morning when winds that move not its calm surface sweep the azure sea i love the land no more the smiles of the serene and tranquil deep tempt my unquiet mind thus said adrian quoting a translation of moschus's poem as in the clear morning light we rode over the laguna past lido into the open sea i would have added in continuation but when the roar of ocean's gray abyss resounds and foam gathers upon the sea and vast waves burst 
but my friends declared that such verses were evil augury so in cheerful mood we left the shallow waters and when out at sea unfurled our sails to catch the favorable breeze the laughing morning air filled them while sunlight bathed earth sky and ocean the placid waves divided to receive our keel and playfully kissed the dark sides of our little skiff murmuring a welcome as land receded still the blue expanse most waveless twin sister to the azure empyrean afforded smooth conduct to our bark as the air and waters were tranquil and balmy so were our minds steeped in quiet in comparison with the unstained deep funeral earth appeared a grave its high rocks and stately mountains were but monuments its trees the plumes of a hearse the brooks and rivers breakish with tears for departed man farewell to desolate towns to fields with their savage intermixture of corn and weeds to ever multiplying relics of our lost species ocean we commit ourselves to thee even as a patriarch of old floated above the drowned world let us be saved as thus we betake ourselves to thy perennial flood adrian sat at the helm i attended to the rigging the breeze right aft filled our swelling canvas and we ran before it over the untroubled deep the wind died away at noon its idle breath just permitted us to hold our course as lazy fair-weather sailors careless of the coming hour we talked gaily of our coasting voyage of our arrival at athens we would make our home of one of the cyclades and there in myrtle groves amidst perpetual spring fanned by the wholesome sea breezes we would live long years in beatific union was there such a thing as death in the world the sun passed its zenith and lingered down the stainless floor of heaven lying in the boat my face turned up to the sky i thought i saw in its blue-white marbled streaks so slight so immaterial that now i said they are there and now it is a mere imagination a sudden fear stung me while i gazed and starting up and running to the prow as i stood my hair was gently lifted on my brow a dark line of ripples appeared to the east gaining rapidly on us my breathless remark to adrian was followed by the flapping of the canvas as the adverse wind struck it and our boat lurched swift as speech the web of the storm thickened overhead the sun went down red the dark sea was strewed with foam and our skiff rose and fell in its increasing furrows behold us now in our frail tenement hemmed in by hungry roaring waves buffeted by winds in the inky east two vast clouds sailing contrary ways met the lightning leapt forth and the hoarse thunder muttered again in the south the clouds replied and the forked stream of fire running along the black sky showed us the appalling piles of clouds now met and obliterated by the heaving waves great god and we alone we three alone sole dwellers on the sea and on the earth we three must perish the vast universe its myriad worlds and the plains of boundless earth which we had left the extent of shoreless sea around contracted to my view they and all that they contained shrunk up to one point even to her tossing bark freighted with glorious humanity a convulsion of despair crossed the love-beaming face of adrian while with set teeth he murmured yet they shall be saved clara visited by a human pang pale and trembling crept near him he looked on her with an encouraging smile do you fear sweet girl oh do not fear we shall soon be on shore the darkness prevented me from seeing the changes of her countenance but her voice was clear and sweet as she replied why should i fear neither sea nor storm can harm us if mighty destiny or the ruler of destiny does not permit 
and then the stinging fear of surviving either of you is not here. One death will clasp us undivided. Meanwhile we took in all our sails save a gib, and as soon as we might without danger changed our course, running with the wind for the Italian shore. Dark night mixed everything. We hardly discerned the white crests of the murderous surges, except when lightning made brief noon and drank the darkness, showing us our danger and restoring us to double night. We were all silent, except when Adrian, as steersman, made an encouraging observation. Our little shell obeyed the rudder miraculously well and ran along on the top of the waves as if she had been an offspring of the sea, and the angry mother sheltered her endangered child. I sat at the prow watching our course, when suddenly I heard the waters break with redoubled fury. We were certainly near the shore. At the same time I cried, About there! and a broad lightning filling the concave showed us for one moment the level beach ahead disclosing even the sands and stunted ooze-sprinkled beds of reeds that grew at high water mark. Again it was dark, and we drew in our breath with such content as one may, who, while fragments of volcano-hurled rock darken the air, sees a vast mass ploughing the ground immediately at his feet. What to do we knew not. The breakers, here, there, everywhere encompassed us. They roared and dashed and flung their hated spray in our faces, with considerable difficulty and danger we succeeded at length in altering our course, and stretched out from shore. I urged my companions to prepare for the wreck of our little skiff, and to bind themselves to some oar or spar which might suffice to float them. I was myself an excellent swimmer. The very sight of the sea was wont to raise in me such sensations as a huntsman experiences when he hears a pack of hounds in full cry. I loved to feel the waves wrap me and strive to overpower me while I, lord of myself, moved this way or that in spite of their angry buffetings. Adrian also could swim, but the weakness of his frame prevented him from feeling pleasure in the exercise or acquiring any great expertness. But what power could the strongest swimmer oppose to the overpowering violence of ocean and its fury? My efforts to prepare my companions were rendered nearly futile, for the roaring breakers prevented our hearing one another speak, and the waves that broke continually over our boat obliged me to exert all my strength in lading the water out as fast as it came in. The wild darkness, palpable and rayless, hemmed us round, dissipated only by the lightning. Sometimes we beheld thunderbolts, fiery red, fall into the sea, and at intervals vast spouts stooped from the clouds, churning the wild ocean which rose to meet them while the fierce gale bore the rack onwards, and they were lost in the chaotic mingling of sky and sea. Our gunwales had been torn away, our single sail had been rent to ribbons, and borne down the stream of the wind. We had cut away our mast, and lightened the boat of all she contained. Clara attempted to assist me in heaving the water from the hold, and as she turned her eyes to look on the lightning, I could discern by that momentary gleam that resignation had conquered every fear. We have a power given us in any worst extremity, which props the else feeble mind of man, and enables us to endure the most savage tortures with the stillness of soul, which in hours of happiness we could not have imagined. A calm more dreadful in truth than the tempest, allayed the wild beatings of my heart, a calm like that of the gamester, the suicide and the murderer, when the last die is on the point of being cast, while the poisoned cup is at the lips, as the death-blow is about to be given. 
hours passed thus hours which might write old age on the face of beardless youth and grizzle the silky hair of infancy hours while the chaotic uproar continued while each dread gust transcended in fury the one before and our skiff hung on the breaking wave and then rushed into the valley below and trembled and spun between the watery precipices that seemed most to meet above her for a moment the gale paused and ocean sank to comparative silence it was a breathless interval the wind which as a practised leaper had gathered itself up before it sprung now with terrific roar rushed over the sea and the waves struck our stern adrian exclaimed that the rudder was gone we are lost cried clara save yourselves oh save yourselves the lightning showed me the poor girl half buried in the water at the bottom of the boat as she was sinking in it adrian caught her up and sustained her in his arms we were without a rudder we rushed prow foremost into the vast billows piled up ahead they broke over and filled the tiny skiff one scream i heard one cry that we were gone i uttered i found myself in the waters darkness was around when the light of the tempest flashed i saw the keel of her upset boat close to me i clung to this grasping it with clenched hand and nails while i endeavoured during each flash to discover any appearance of my companions i thought i saw adrian at no great distance from me clinging to an oar i sprung from my hold and with energy beyond my human strength i dashed aside the waters as i strove to lay hold of him as that hope failed instinctive love of life animated me and feelings of contention as if a hostile will combated with mine i breasted the surges and flung them from me as i would the opposing front and sharpened claws of a lion about to enfang my bosom when i had been beaten down by one wave i rose on another while i felt bitter pride curl my lip ever since the storm had carried us near the shore we had never attained any great distance from it with every flash i saw the bordering coast yet the progress i made was small while each wave as it receded carried me back into ocean's far abysses at one moment i felt my foot touch the sand and then again i was in deep water my arms began to lose their power of motion my breath failed me under the influence of the strangling waters a thousand wild and delirious thoughts crossed me as well as i can now recall them my chief feeling was how sweet it would be to lay my head on the quiet earth where the surges would no longer strike my weakened frame nor the sound of waters ring in my ears to attain this repose not to save my life i made a last effort the shelving shore suddenly presented a footing for me i rose and was again thrown down by the breakers a point of rock to which i was enabled to cling gave me a moment's respite and then taking advantage of the ebbing of the waves i ran forwards gained the dry sands and fell senseless on the oozy reeds that sprinkled them i must have lain long deprived of life for when first with a sickening feeling i enclosed my eyes the light of morning met them great change had taken place meanwhile grey dawn dappled the flying clouds which sped onwards leaving visible at intervals vast lakes of pure ether a fountain of light arose in an increasing stream from the east behind the waves of the adriatic changing the grey to a rosy hue and then flooding sky and sea with aerial gold a kind of stupor followed my fainting my senses were alive but memory was extinct the blessed respite was short a snake lurked near me to sting me into life on the first retrospect emotion i would have started up but my limbs refused to obey me my knees trembled the muscles had lost all power 
I still believed that I might find one of my beloved companions cast like me half alive on the beach, and I strove in every way to restore my frame to the use of its animal functions. I wrung the brine from my hair, and the rays of the risen sun soon visited me with genial warmth. With the restoration of my bodily powers, my mind became in some degree aware of the universe of misery, henceforth to be its dwelling. I ran to the water's edge, calling on the beloved names. Ocean drank in, and absorbed my feeble voice, replying with pitiless roar. I climbed a near tree, the level sands bounded by a pine forest, and the sea clipped round by the horizon was all that I could discern. In vain I extended my researches along the beach. The mast we had thrown overboard, with tangled cordage and remnants of a sail, was a sole relic land received of our wreck. Sometimes I stood still and wrung my hands. I accused earth and sky, the universal machine, and the almighty power that misdirected it. Again I threw myself on the sands, and then the sighing wind, mimicking a human cry, roused me to bitter, fallacious hope. Assuredly, if any little bark or smallest canoe had been near, I should have sought the savage plains of ocean, found the dear remains of my lost ones, and, clinging round them, have shared their grave. The day passed thus, each moment contained eternity, although one hour after hour had gone by, I wondered at the quick flight of time. Yet even now I had not drunk the bitter potion to the dregs. I was not yet persuaded of my loss. I did not yet feel in every pulsation, in every nerve, in every thought, that I remained alone of my race, that I was the last man. The day had clouded over, and a drizzling rain set in at sunset. Even the eternal skies weep, I thought. Is there any shame, then, that mortal man should spend himself in tears? I remembered the ancient fables in which human beings are described as dissolving away through weeping into ever-gushing fountains. Ah, that so it were. And then my destiny would be in some sort akin to the watery death of Adrian and Clara. Oh, grief is fantastic. It weaves a web on which to trace the history of its woe from every form and change around. It incorporates itself with all living nature. It finds sustenance in every object. As light it fills all things, and, like light, it gives its own colors to all. I had wandered in my search to some distance from the spot on which I had been cast, and came to one of those watch-towers which at stated distances lined the Italian shore. I was glad of shelter, glad to find a work of human hands, after I had gazed so long on nature's drear barrenness. So I entered and ascended the rough winding staircase into the guard-room. So far was fate kind that no harrowing vestige remained of its former inhabitants. A few planks laid across two iron trestles, and strewed with the dried leaves of Indian corn was the bed presented to me, and an open chest containing some half-moldered biscuit awakened an appetite which perhaps existed before, but of which until now I was not aware. Thirst also, violent and parching, the result of the sea-water I had drank, and of the exhaustion of my frame, tormented me. Kind nature had gifted the supply of these wants with pleasurable sensations, so that I, even I, was refreshed and calmed, as I ate of this sorry fare, and drank a little of the sour wine which half-filled the flask left in this abandoned dwelling. Then I stretched myself on the bed, not to be disdained by the victim of shipwreck. The earthy smell of the dried leaves was balm to my sense after the hateful odor of seaweed. I forgot my state of loneliness. 
I neither looked backward nor forward. My senses were hushed to repose. I fell asleep and dreamed of all dear inland scenes, of haymakers, of the shepherd's whistle to his dog, when he demanded his help to drive the flock to fold, of sights and sounds peculiar to my boyhood's mountain life, which I had long forgotten. I awoke in a painful agony, for I fancied the ocean breaking its bounds carried away the fixed continent and deep-rooted mountains, together with the streams I loved, the woods and the flocks, it raged around with that continued and dreadful roar which had accompanied the last wreck of surviving humanity. As my waking sense returned, the bare walls of the guard-room closed round me, and the rain pattered against the single window. How dreadful it is to emerge from the oblivion of slumber! and to receive as a good morrow the mute wailing of one's own hapless heart, to return from the land of deceptive dreams to the heavy knowledge of unchanged disaster. Thus was it with me, now and for ever. The sting of other griefs might be blunted by time, and even mine yielded sometimes during the day, to the pleasure inspired by the imagination or the senses, but I never look first upon the morning light, but with my fingers pressed tight on my bursting heart and my soul deluged with the interminable flood of hopeless misery. Now I awoke for the first time in the dead world. I awoke alone, and the dull dirge of the sea, heard even amidst the rain, recalled me to the reflection of the wretch I had become. The sound came like a reproach, a scoff, like the sting of remorse in the soul. I gasped. The veins and muscles of my throat swelled, suffocating me. I put my fingers to my ears, I buried my head in the leaves of my couch, I would have dived to the centre to lose hearing of that hideous moan. What a pitiable, forlorn, disconsolate being I was! My very aspect and garb told the tale of my despair. My hair was matted and wild, my limbs soiled with salt ooze. While at sea I had thrown off those of my garments that encumbered me, and the rain drenched the thin summer clothing I had retained. My feet were bare, and the stunted reeds and broken shells made them bleed. The while I hurried to and fro, now looking earnestly on some distant rock, which, islanded in the sands, bore for a moment a deceptive appearance, now with flashing eyes reproaching the murderous ocean for its unutterable cruelty. For a moment I compared myself to that monarch of the waste, Robinson Crusoe. We had been both thrown companionless, he on the shore of a desolate island, I on that of a desolate world. I was rich in the so-called goods of life. If I turned my steps from the near barren scene, and entered any of the earth's million cities, I should find their wealth stored up for my accommodation, clothes, food, books, and a choice of dwelling beyond the command of the princes of former times. Every climate was subject to my selection while he was obliged to toil in the acquirement of every necessary, and was the inhabitant of a tropical island, against whose heats and storms he could obtain small shelter. Viewing the question thus, who would not have preferred the sybarite enjoyments I would command, the philosophic leisure and ample intellectual resources, to his life of labor and peril? Yet he was far happier than I, for he could hope, nor hope in vain, the destined vessel at last arrived, to bear him to countrymen and kindred, where the events of his solitude became a fireside tale. To none could I ever relate the story of my adversity. No hope had I. He knew that, beyond the ocean which begirt his lonely island, thousands lived whom the sun enlightened when it shone also on him. Beneath the meridian sun and visiting moon, I alone bore human features. 
I alone could give articulation to thought, and when I slept, both day and night were unbeheld of any. He had fled from his fellows, and was transported with terror at the print of a human foot. I would have knelt down and worshipped the same. The wild and cruel Caribbee, the merciless cannibal, or worse than these, the uncouth, brute, and remorseless veteran of the vices of civilization, would have been to me a beloved companion, a treasure dearly prized. His nature would be kin to mine, his form cast in the same mould. Human blood would flow in his veins. A human sympathy must link us for ever. It cannot be that I shall never behold a fellow-being more. Never! Never! Not in the course of years shall I wake and speak to none past the interminable hours my soul islanded in the world, a solitary point surrounded by vacuum. Will day follow day endlessly thus? No, no, a god rules the world. Providence has not exchanged its golden scepter for an aspic sting. Away, let me fly from the ocean grave, let me depart from this barren nook, paled in as it is from access by its own desolateness. Let me tread once again the paved towns, step over the threshold of man's dwellings, and most certainly I shall find this thought a horrible vision, a maddening but evanescent dream. I entered Ravenna, the town nearest to the spot whereon I had been cast, before the second sun had set on the empty world. I saw many living creatures, oxen and horses and dogs, but there was no man among them. I entered a cottage, it was vacant. I ascended the marble stairs of a palace, the bats and the owls were nestled in the tapestry. I stepped softly, not to awaken the sleeping town. I rebuked a dog that by yelping disturbed the sacred stillness. I would not believe that all was as it seemed. The world was not dead, but I was mad. I was deprived of sight, hearing, and sense of touch. I was laboring under the force of a spell which permitted me to behold all sights of earth except its human inhabitants. They were pursuing their ordinary labors. Every house had its inmate, but I could not perceive them. If I could have deluded myself into a belief of this kind, I should have been far more satisfied but my brain tenacious of its reason refused to lend itself to such imaginations, and though I endeavored to play the antic to myself, I knew that I, the offspring of man, during long years one among many, now remained sole survivor of my species. The sun sank behind the western hills. I had fasted since the preceding evening, but, though faint and weary, I loathed food, nor ceased while yet a ray of light remained, to pace the lonely streets. Night came on, and sent every living creature but me to the bosom of its mate. It was my solace to blunt my mental agony by personal hardship. Of the thousand beds around, I would not seek the luxury of one. I lay down on the pavement. A cold marble step served me for a pillow. Midnight came, and then, though not before, did my wearied lids shut out the sight of the twinkling stars, and the reflex on the pavement near. Thus I passed the second night of my desolation. End of chapter 9